Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2014. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, hooray, the Oscars are on Monday, which means I don't have to hear about the damn things for another year. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, everybody. I'm writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, uh, valet, Harold Ramis, Paul Anthony Nelson, and our very special guest with us today is... Oh, it's me. <laughs> I'm Stephanie Bendixson. Um, I guess I can go hyphen hex because you guys have so many hyphens. I feel like I need to include some. I'm a gamer, hyphen game reviewer, hyphen television presenter on ABC Two's Good Game. Um, and that's really fun for me because it's a fun job. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Steph, really oh. appreciate you being here. Pleasure. You're comfortable moving outside the sort of the, the gaming talk into into film, right? I am comfortable, yes. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the most recent games I played, um, well, I suppose it was, it's more to the end of last year now, was Beyond, which had was like starring Willem Dafoe and uh, Ellen Page, which is bizarre. I think we're going to start to see a lot more games now with kind of movie poster, you know, actor likenesses and stuff in the game. It was weird. Interesting. It's Interesting. Really- well, there is no comfortable segue from that into Alexander Payne's Nebraska. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> now, um, uh, did you guys see this one? I bit, haven't. You no. haven't. I uh, did. Yeah. Now we've uh, we've talked about Payne's work before on the show, gone through all of his films. I'm a huge fan of his work, and this sort of feels like for a film that's so distinct and original. It kind of feels like a best-of work, like he's taken elements from About Schmidt and The Descendants and Sideways, sort of mashed them up together, and yet it does feel like an original film. I think Sideways is still my favourite, but I, I this is close to his best work. Yeah, I have to agree. I I actually think the um, the difference between this and everything Payne's done to date, with the possible exception of The Descendants, but I think this even more so, but I, I feel like this is his warmest film to date. Mm. I, like I don't feel like it's not it's nearly as despairing and as cynical as um, his great early works like Citizen Ruth and Election and and About Schmidt and Sideways, um, but it's definitely still it doesn't blunt the edges. It is critical of Middle America and of you know the the way people treat each other and small small communities and, and rivalries and all this sort of thing. But it's also, yeah, it has this kind of warmth at its centre and it looks gorgeous. It does. And by the way, I should say the marketing material has not backed you up on that because the posters make it look terrifying. It looks like <laughs> friggin' a razor head. I've, I've seen them. It does look a little bit like um, a movie about a serial killer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's like such a funny and uplifting film at its heart. And I laughed a lot during it. Yeah, and yet, yeah, it's it's. I'm wondering how many people are being turned off by how how but, bleak they're selling it. But it's such an eye-catching campaign. It's such a '70s-looking poster as well. I, Ivan Milat was eye-catching as well. You know, <laughs> it's not a, always a good thing. <laughs> um, but you know, I was a little bit worried early on. Like the first half hour, I was feeling a little bit prosaic, and I was feeling a bit sort of, uh, kind of, geez, I don't know. It feels like he's sort of going through the motions here, but. Whether it's just adjusting to this style of storytelling or these characters and, you know, where they come from and who they are, but all of a sudden, uh, about the halfway mark of the film, I just suddenly found myself enchanted. And by the time uh, Bob Odenkirk returns to the film to join Will Forte, these guys play brothers, the sons of Bruce Dern, they decide to try to, I won't say too much, but settle a score that their father has, that the film completely had me. 
And then from then on, it just, oh, I was just putty in its hands. I just thought it was gorgeous. Now, uh, now, what do you think of uh, blue is the warmest color? Because, like, on the outside, I got, I got to say, the idea of a French girl exploring her sexuality while people talk about uh, philosophy and art uh, kind of feels like the most stereotypical French film ever. <laughs> I thought that coming out of it, like, that is possibly the most French movie ever made. <laughs> I was. Um... <laughs> Don't get me wrong here. I was super excited to see this film mm. because I'd heard a lot about it. It was generating a lot of buzz online and the actresses, um, you know, that they seemed really um, competent and really interesting people. But then I started to hear a lot of negativity surrounding how they were treated and there was, um, you know, it ended up being a bit of a scandal and stuff. So then I was even kind of more interested to see it, to see how this whole thing um, played out. And to be honest, I was pretty disappointed. I mean... For me, these kinds of uh, films that are exploring sexuality, particularly um, someone who is kind of awakening to the fact that they might be gay and things like that, they, they can be dealt with in a really lovely way or a really um, interesting and engaging way or, you know, um, this looked like it was kind of going down that path, but then it has this like epic seven minute sex scene in there that like, this is kind of a, a feminist thing to say maybe, but um, it, it just really looked like it was uh, lesbian sex for, from the perspective of um, a, a man who's, who's never really met lesbians or talked to them or anything like that. Like it, it just, it felt really gratuitous and intense and kind of um, awkward to watch. I don't know. Do, do you think that was, you were at all influenced by, I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, but, by the behind-the-scenes stories of... Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, what I kind of felt coming out of that scene was not like, oh, this is the blossoming romance of these two people or this is like, you know, uh, uh, two girls finding themselves in each other. It was just like, it was like kind of borderline porn, really. Mm. And I feel like often films like that, they put those things in there to get people talking and it generates that kind of... Um, you know, discussion and, and, and buzz that, that makes people go and see the film. But I don't necessarily think I, – I, I kind of thought that this was going to be one of those films that end up being a hallmark to lesbian culture. But I, I, I haven't spoken to any lesbians who watched it, but I, I can imagine that a lot of them would be a little bit frustrated with it. Mm. I could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, I didn't really feel one way or the other about those scenes in, in that I was going along with the filmmaker. So whenever something questionable like that – comes up or that's something that feels gratuitous if the rest of the film isn't gratuitous i sort of trust them i figure there's got to be a reason that's in there and because yeah. I, I was enjoying the rest of it so much i felt i felt about it the same way i did with um uh, michael winterbottom's nine songs which is another film that's sort of been criticized for the amount of sex that's in it and it, because of the way it sort of it jumps forward in time and just picks yeah. up on intense moments and it's sort of it's the way that we remember our lives we don't remember everything equally we just remember points and and arguments and yeah yeah and and i i connected with that idea and and of course with the leads who i thought were extraordinary yeah i agree i think they were great but i was much more i suppose in, interested in those kind of smaller moments in the relationship and mm. uh, the relationships they developed that that scene i felt i don't know that it, it brought that much to the film. Sure. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't know. I, I don't know. And maybe this is just the male in me. Song. I don't know. But I, <laughs> look, obviously, they're both very attractive ladies. Uh, but it's not, it goes beyond that. Like, usually I do find sex scenes in films 
extremely, you know, uncomfortable because it's just that kind of intrusion. And whereas this felt kind of visceral to me, it felt, and I, I think it fit in with a lot of the film. Like I think there were various moments in the film, often emotional moments that had equally had that visceral charge, but I, I wasn't so much into the whole epic take thing that the, that the film kind of does. And I know it's trying to immerse you in, into the reality of the piece and get you to feel like you're there, but you've got this film sort of full of these eight-minute sort of scenes that just seem to run on and on and on. So the the length of the sex scene didn't feel any more or less gratuitous than anything else in the film because everything else went on so long and we're like <laughs> <laughs> watching her sleep for reasons that beggar belief. And I know, look, it's called, in French, it's called The Life of Adele and it's what um, chapter one and two, But and that's obviously what it's trying to give us. But I just kind of found that I often would lose interest in what was going on. I didn't find the dynamics within the crushing length of those scenes that interesting. However, I think the film does cut through at certain moments. I think there are moments like memories, as you say, Lee, that that, that resonate with anybody who's discovered their own, you know, whatever their sexuality is or, or been through a first love or a first infatuation. Just just on the title thing, I, mm. I find it interesting that the titles are so different in English and in French, because for me, the the, the English title "Blue is the Warmest Color" is easily the superior title, because it's and it feels deliberate. Because if you look at the use of the word "blue" throughout the film, it's it's so intense and and on the nose, like brilliantly on the nose, and that it, it always drips with meaning. It means safety at one point and danger at another point. You mean it, you mean the color blue. The colour blue, yeah. You said the word blue. Oh, okay, the colour yeah, blue. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just trying to work that out. <laughs> I was like, when did they say blue in the film? Yeah, oh, oh my yes. God, it's like an M. Night Shyamalan use of blue. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, every, yeah, as you say, sometimes it's safety, sometimes it's But it's like, it's like a mood, mood ring as the, as the relationship <laughs> changes, what the blue means changes as well, the, me- the meaning behind that colour, and I found that really, uh, really evocative. But one thing I, I do absolutely concur with you on, I thought the, the leads were fantastic. Adele Exarchopoulos. You're on your and, own. And, <laughs> and uh, Lea Seydoux were both, both absolutely excellent. Mm. Another film that's been getting equally good and bad reviews, I think, is Dallas Buyers Club. The film which is the latest chapter in what is being referred to as the Litosinons. <laughs> the uh, the uh, yeah the Jared Leto comeback. No, um, it's the you know the story of the of a man who had AIDS and uh, and sort of fought to get the drugs that he needed that weren't FDA approved. And let's fought, let's fought... add a very uh, defining word to the start of that sentence: a straight man gets AIDS. A straight man gets AIDS in in the story. Um, yes. It's told in a very, I think one of the reasons it appealed to me is it's told in a very sort of straightforward Aaron Brockovich-like manner. There's no, you know, for what's what could have been an inspirational, uh, powerful Oscar bait story is told, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, of surging music. There isn't a lot of speechifying. There, there aren't flourishes. It's, it, it's told in a very pared-back manner. And, uh, and I really responded to that because it was the exact opposite of what I was expecting. Yeah, I kind of read a little bit of that as lack of personality. Mm. Um, I like that it didn't hit you over the head with things, but at the same time, you know, you did. It did feel kind of a bit bloodless, and then it sort of had this hackneyed kind of McConaughey trying to pick up Jennifer Garner's character, and that just felt kind of hackneyed to me. And it was, it sort of, I think it did 
this is a film where the the perspective the straight perspective did kind of annoy me. I thought he'd be a lot more interesting character than he was in the film. Like, I loved McConaughey's performance and obviously uh, Jared Leto's as well. And Jared Leto has probably by far the most interesting character of the two of them. And I I sort of felt, wow, I'm not finding this guy as interesting as, say, what the stories of the original gay AIDS sufferers that created the original buyers clubs that that the McConaughey character took his concept from. If you know what I mean. Like, right. you know, he, he learns about the buyers clubs that are already happening. And it's like, well, why don't we hear, where, where's the star-studded versions of their stories? i got to say, my partner pointed this out, and once she did, it was like having a veil lifted. It's the, it's, it's the Schindler's List structure. Mm. It's exactly the same. Right. Um, even down to Jared Leto being the Ben Kingsley character, being the, 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 the person from the minority that's being persecuted that winds up helping our lead character to love and understand that you know mm. that culture and try and save it and going from making profiting from the these victims to you know selling everything he owns and 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 so yeah we kind of get the straight edge well that's the thing because the, the guy the actual guy that mcconaughey is playing uh wasn't straight he wasn't the homophobe that the film depicts him as um he was actually bisexual and i i'm sort of in two minds about this because I think it's understandable that the way they'd want to open up this story for certain audiences. There's And there's probably a whole other conversation in this, like should films play to the audience's worst tendencies so that mm. they can go on the the trail of redemption with the protagonist? Yep. So if he starts out as a homophobe and ends up, you know, not so much, then maybe the audience will go on that journey as well. And I feel like that's what they're trying to do with the character, which is... Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah. in, I'm, I'm in two minds about I it. I see what you're saying, because I, I think 12 Years a Slave was a great example of that, of, of introducing the concept of being a slave to people who, let's face it, don't understand what it's like to be a slave. Mm. Yeah, and look, I think you're probably right. I think they've, they've, they've made that consideration. Um, I don't know, maybe if a queer filmmaker made it? I don't know. It's just, I just found it a bit problematic and a bit mm. too vanilla. But yeah, but Jared Leto is fantastic, and so is the McConaughey. Ah, uh, you said it. I thought we'd get through it without you saying that. Beautiful. Well, I this is the part of the show where I have to apologise. I have to apologise to you, Steph, because I feel responsible. I I, I was the one who you made so, me see a Winter's Tale. I made you see Winter's Tale, and I just I've been I've been like just racked with guilt about it because. I did say it was a film so bad you have to see it, but I didn't actually <laughs> literally mean you should see it. So I apologise. <laughs> Can yes. I just say as well that I also went into this thinking I was going to see some modern adaptation of Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but it was not. <laughs> well, that's the first of its sins, isn't it? It's like, let's rip off a Shakespeare title <laughs> to dress up my crummy movie. <laughs> but, like, uh, it's so deceptive because what a killer cast. I mean, it's good. In a, I love Jennifer Connolly. Mm. I love that, that girl from Downton Abbey, the, the, the lead girl. What's her name? Oh. Michelle Dockery, is that? No, the other one. The other one. Jessica Finley Brown? Yes, 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 Jessica Brown Finley. And, um, you know, Colin Farrell is in it as well, Russell Crowe. <laughs> and at one point, Will Smith, which was a total shock. <laughs> you might have lost Lee with the last three, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing. <laughs> See, I, I don't actually like it when 
people hate watch things. You know that term hate watching? Where they watch yeah. something they hate so much. You know, I, I find it generally like horrible, mean-spirited way of absorbing entertainment and it really has no place. However... You hate watched this. I hate watched the hell out of this. I, I just... <laughs> I look... I'm, I've never really been a fan of Akiva Goldsman. I've heard he's a really nice guy and I, he'd have to be. Um, but <laughs> the films he's written uh, I find generally terrible. And this is the first one he's directed and it's just, it's so cliche ridden. Like the central conceit is that love is so powerful it can perform miracles, which in itself is quite unoriginal and hammy. And then the narration is, it's like they picked a bunch of random words like miracles, destiny and stars and just threw them into a blender and they come out in no particular order. <laughs> and, it, and then you've got the stuff with the devils and the angels and there's a flying oh, I know, horse. That's the, worst. the thing is, I, I love fantasy so much. Mm. Fantasy is right up my alley. I mean, sure, maybe I'm sort of more Lord of the Rings with my fantasy, but, you know, I'll, I'll stretch beyond that. Mm. So really... I feel like there was part of me that could have been on board with this, but this was quite possibly the lamest sort of supernatural ridden miracle fairy flying horse <laughs> fantasy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and the worst part as well is that <laughs> its general message was at the end, I can't remember what the line was, but it was like love, um, love everyone is, is so special um, that, you know, we're all so unique and wonderful that life finds a way to, you know, make everything okay again. I was like, well, not really for Jessica Brown Finley's character, really. <laughs> <laughs> she, didn't, she obviously wasn't unique and special enough to be, you know, <laughs> loved and embraced by the universe. <laughs> what was Rusty doing? I, I, this is, I mean, I asked this with nearly every film he's in, but it really, like, with his Irish accent and... Um, <laughs> It, like I feel like he's aping someone from a movie, but I can't tell who. <laughs> I've been racking my brains to think of a character or actor he's trying to do, and, and I just it's just baffling. Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. <laughs> Not, no, no, his accent wasn't that good. <laughs> do you think they'll ever give him a crack at directing again? No. Nah. <laughs> nah. This is his on deadly ground. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the poster quote it should have. Ridiculous, the whole thing, and it's not like the performances of the actors. I mean, Bar Russell Crowe, maybe who obviously overacted because the role was stupid and the mm. dialogue was stupid. You know, Colin Farrell was okay. Jessica Brown Finlay was okay. Jennifer Con- Connelly was was all, she's always lovely. Mm. It's just that at what point when you're an actor and you're reading through the script, you go, "This sounds dumb on paper. It's going to sound dumb when I have to say it with my mouth." Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel think, like I feel like this is the film where, and I haven't seen it, but I feel like it's, this is the film where everyone <laughs> cashes in their beautiful mind, Oscar chips. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We just spend it. I feel like maybe sometimes they just, uh, you know, Russell Crowe was wanted to do a movie where he got to have an Irish accent and play a bad guy, and mm. just was blinded by that fact. I, I yeah, and I couldn't agree. Same more. with Will Smith. He's like, I get to play the devil. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Paul, you should see it. <laughs> back, back me up, Steph. He should, he should too. I would never be that cruel to someone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if we Especially had to suffer, someone you've just met well. online. Do you like flying horses? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> I've started off on the wrong foot, haven't I? Yeah. Flying horses. <laughs> 
So in our middle segment this week, um, seeing we have a subject matter expert in the uh, online room, as it were. I didn't um, know you were an expert in subject matter. I'm no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a subject. <laughs> but our uh, guest today is in her other guise as Hex of Good Game. We thought it might be opportune to pose the question: Should video games be adapted into movies? Um, I think it absolutely is a um, a form that can that can be fit for adaptation. That um, there already have been some some great video game uh, movies and. There's and and some and vice versa, but there's also been a whole lot of bad ones. The horror of the movie tie-in game when it goes the other way around. So, for example, they have a, a game that they try to sort of rush out in conjunction with the release of a film, yeah. um, and that that rush really is what becomes its downfall because obviously game development is a is a really long process, and so when they try to rush it out to, to release with the film for maximum consumer impact, you know, the game always ends up being terrible. But, it, but also, too, there's that, there's that factor, isn't there, Steph, that it's not only is it a good film, but is it a good adaptation of the game? It's difficult because, I mean, a game is, um, you know, it's an experience that you're taking part in with an element of interactivity and then film is very passive. So you need to be able to translate that well. You know, there's, there's, there was a funny moment in the, the Prince of Persia movie, which I wouldn't exactly say was a good film, um, but I would say it was a, an adequate adaptation of the game. I mean, it's a game where you're playing a prince of Persia and you do a lot of platforming and stuff, and that's generally the main crux of it. There's a story that goes along with it, but generally it's about the platforming and stuff. So how yeah. do you then turn that experience into a movie? So they had a love story and they had supernatural elements, but there was a great moment where he then goes into a very video gamey moment where he sort of scales up the inside of a building and you're like, oh, there it is, yeah. <laughs> a, a nod to the gamer. And so I'm looking for those moments in the upcoming Assassin's Creed film, which I think uh, is going, to, I think they've cast Michael Fassbender in there. I don't know, they've said he's going to be Ezio or if he's going to be uh, um, Desmond or, or both or they're starting further back. But uh, regardless, he'll be in it, which is already a good sign. And it's such a huge franchise. I really hope they do it justice. Well, David S. Goyer, who's a screenwriter, he wrote on Man of Steel and Dark Knight, said that um, he thought that video games are more concerned with environment than character, and films lead from character. And in games, it's sort of like you're the character in a way that you aren't in films, and maybe that's why the translation has been so tough. Yeah, I think so. I think also people feel so connected to the character when they're in control of it. So when you see another actor portraying that role and they're not doing it justice and they're not, I suppose, mirroring the experiences that you've had with that character and they feel a little bit let down. Mm. I was thinking about the plots in video games, about how when, when they started, they were very, very simple. You had one goal at the end, whether it was save the princess or beat up that guy or you know, whatever it was. I'm looking at Super Mario Brothers and, and Street Fighter here because um, I've got those written down. But, um, <laughs> and then combat. they got to a point where they started introducing these really interesting narratives, but they, they quickly got to a point where the, the production values were so high that they were becoming movies in their own right. And I wonder if there was a flashpoint where there was enough of an interesting story for them to be made into films, but then they overtook films in a way. And now, now the film is sort of redundant because the games look so good. I don't know. That's, that's a theory I pulled out from somewhere. But, well, uh, well, it's interesting because I'm, again, I'm not a gamer, but I, more friends of mine seem to have cried upon finishing The Last of Us 
than any film they've seen in the last two years. And again, I guess it's that thing that you invest yourself in the character because you are the character and you're involving in the env- and there's that whole sort of evolving environment around you with an increasingly complex story. And I guess you're kind of living it in a way, which it, it sort of puts it out of film's reach to a certain extent. It comes back to that point we were talking about before, I guess. Well, I think it's it's just another case of whether the book is better than the movie and things like that because you're going to get a completely different experience and there's things that you can bring to a film that you might not be able to bring in a video game. Obviously, a greater sense of narrative and cinematography and things like that, whereas with the game, it's more focused on the action and how the player is involved in the story and the actions that the player makes and things like that. But I don't necessarily think that making a film from a game would take anything away from it, but it's if it's a, if it's a substantial enough game, that people really love it it gives them another opportunity to experience another facet of that the one that i'm probably most curious about is the world of warcraft movie i, I was about to bring that up yeah there is a lot of lore surrounding um world of warcraft so i'm sure they have a lot to kind of mine from but how you make a, a film that would appeal to everyone out of that well you'd have to center it around something at least um fairly basic that an audience can follow and not get too bogged down in fantasy you know creating a whole new fantasy world that you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it would be crazy. But I'm, you know, I'm very interested to see how they go about it and how they pull it off. Like from what I've heard about War- World of Warcraft, like people lose years and months to it. And this, as you say, there's so much lore going on there. It's almost like trying to make a short film out of Lord of the Rings. But you know, the What's majority of people that play World of Warcraft aren't really playing it for the story. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's not one of those games that I would say, oh yeah, it's got the most wonderful, like, uh, you know, incredible narrative to it. People are playing it because they're just addicted to the, the quest structure and the kind of carrot on a stick formula that the game uses. Mm. Whereas there are other games that I think, uh, you know, would be much better. Like Mass Effect, for example, would be incredible, you know, to create a video game out of. Yeah. Definitely not Need for Speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's out soon. Um yeah, I've, I've seen that one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. Okay. Is it basically just Fast and the Furious 7? Oh, 8? Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the Warcraft film is being made by Duncan Jones, who made Moon and... Source Code. M- Source Code, yes. Yeah, he's very, he's very story-driven. And I was wondering if uh, maybe he's part of the generation that was raised on uh, narrative games. Like, he's sort of young enough to have had that affect him and maybe we're about to see a generation of uh, filmmakers who are influ- who, who, who care about story in games and might understand the form better. Well, that was the other argument, wasn't it, that the previous generation of video games we've had were made by people who didn't understand video games. Um, mm. They were often made by older, you know, older filmmakers that, you know, come from, like, Doom was directed by a cinematographer and who was in his 60s. And, you know, um, uh, Mario Brothers was directed by a couple of, you know, music video directors. And, and it's this kind of thing that they just, they hadn't grown up on, on video game play and structure. And, and now... Duncan Jones is very much part of that generation. And even with with what we saw with what Edgar Wright did with Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. 
And you're sort of seeing now that that video game language and and approach is being incorporated into film. So I think as um as video games become more sophisticated with the kinds of themes that they tackle as well, they'll be more interesting fodder for film also. Because you know I love the Resident Evil movie, <laughs> maybe not the gazillion sequels that have come since, yeah. but that first one I thought that was pretty cool. I, <laughs> just Mila Jovovich and that opportunistic kind of red dress mm-hmm. that appears for her to wear, and then she goes around shooting zombies and the lasers that cube people and all that kind of stuff. That was, that was a great film uh, that I have seen many, many times, um, <laughs> as, as trashy as it is. But then, you know, you've got things like Hitman and stuff, which is not so great. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever saw Dead or Alive with Holly Valette. Oh, I didn't. There no. is a fantastic fight scene in that movie where she um, uh, fights topless uses a towel as a weapon and the each shot is framed so that the towel is covering her boobs. It's magnificent <laughs> direction. Um, yeah, so there's there's obviously like it's it's all been very kind of popcorn fluffy stuff. But yeah, The Last of Us would be an incredible film to see. Beyond as well, another incredible film with Beyond Two Souls. I'd love to see that in, in a movie. And and yeah, Assassin's Creed with the historical element would be so cool. So you're happy to see them continuing to attempt to to adapt video games? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, I, I love games and so I, you know, it's, it's just, it's the same when people see the film and they want to go read a book and, and, and I would hope that it would have the same reaction on people. I would love for people to then, you know, go see an Assassin's Creed movie and then that would prompt them to play the video game and, and vice versa. All right, Steph, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I was like, there's someone else that's joined us. Uh, I've, chosen, <laughs> I've chosen Luc Besson. Excellent. So why did you pick uh, Besson? Well, uh, look, to be honest, there's with most of the films that I like, like I've always sort of carried with me a top 10 or a top 20 that I will sort of change as, as new things come out that I fall in love with. But I've never really um, taken... Um, much uh, from from one particular director. But one of my favorite movies of all time was The Fifth Element. And then when I kind of looked back through some of the films that Luke Besson's created, um, Leon the Professional, La Femme Nikita, they're all really, really cool films with strong characters that I just thought were great. So, um, yeah, I just, I just really, really love those, uh, particularly The Fifth Element and the way that they created sci-fi. Yeah. Now, is, is there something that appeals to you about his work, his visual approach to his work? Because he's such a visual filmmaker. Yeah, and it, kind of, it was interesting kind of going back through some of his older stuff because, um, you know, obviously The Fifth Element has a very particular visual style and, um, you know, it, it, I, it paints a really uh, specific and stylized vision of the future, which I just love. Um, but then going back to something like The Big Blue, um, where it kind of begins in black and white and then kind of um, goes through those beautiful sweeping shots of the ocean and then you kind of get this, I don't know, there, there are some of those beautiful shots where he's kind of diving down and you get that sense of almost going into space as well. Mm. There is another, mm. he's just really good at kind of creating that um, otherworldliness, which I really like. Absolutely, yeah. He's got such a distinct visual style. Um, I think he was described as the most Hollywood European director there was. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and also a pioneer of what was called by French film critics in the 80s the cinéma du look, which was all about apparently that uh, directors that would prize style over substance, which Besson kind of railed against because he's like, well, there's plenty of themes 
in these films. When you, you say know, Cinema de Luc, do you mean it was named after him? Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> cinema, no, Cinema de Luc. Oh, right. De Luc. Yes. Sorry, I genuinely thought you meant Cinema Luke. de Luc. Right. <laughs> um, it may as well have been. Um, well, yeah. well, it's funny because when you put Leon the Professional and La Femme Nikita next to each other, there's obviously, um, you know, strong comparisons that you could draw between mm. the two of those. But, um, you know, it's the characters and the, and the character relationships between those films set around this, um, you know, the, the violence that occurs that I found really exciting. Natalie Portman's character in Leon the Professional is just so interesting and makes you so uncomfortable at the same time because she's mm. so young and she attaches herself to this French assassin in an almost um, infatuated slash nurturing way and the whole time you, you're you kind of, you're glad that they've, they've kind of formed this relationship because he's going to look after her. She's come from such a horrible background and then at the same time as their relationship develops it's, you start to, it borders on inappropriate and so you start to get really worried but then at the same <laughs> time there's a tenderness that is maintained throughout that's just so wonderful and I love that conflict. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such an interesting interesting dynamic and and the thing is, he always stays on the right side of appropriateness as well. Like, like she starts to push that, and he's always like, "No, no, 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 don't do that, Matilda. Don't, you know." <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, like, she's helping him as well through their relationship. You know, she's helping him feel like a person again, rather than a shell that just, you know, is activated to kill people and then goes back and sleeps in a chair. It's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but he suddenly has something to live for and the fact that you know his life is no longer the situation he goes into is, is no longer a no-lose situation he has something mm. that he needs to protect and stay alive for and mm. and that's really great well, and, that- and with uh, La Femme Nikita I love that she again she's a, a character a rough character that comes from a um, a a dodgy past, but then Mm -hmm. um, is given almost a second chance to kind of live like a normal girl and how she kind of blossoms, um, you know, in the, in the relationship she develops. And um, while at the same time, she's having to kind of carry out these brutal tasks as, as an assassin. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful scene where her um, boyfriend is in a, is in a hotel room and she's in the bathroom and she's just been given a kill order and he's sort of trying to talk about their relationship through the door and she's sort of lining up a shot through the bathroom window and he's confessing his feelings to her and trying to talk about the relationship and it's just, it's so wonderful. I mean, I love really strong female characters. So, um, you know, uh, with Leon and Nikita and The Fifth Element, those were all uh, movies that really resonated with me because I love seeing characters like that in film. Well, yeah, his, his character work really, like he really had to start with characters because his first film, The Last Battle in 83, like it's a post-apocalyptic film, but because it's silent and in black and white, it's the most French post-apocalyptic film you've ever seen. <laughs> but it's all about characters sort of relating to one another in an environment in which they have no reason to trust each other. And I think he's got really, really strong character work and, and that film sort of is evidence of, of the fact that he could work under those conditions. And, and certainly something like Subway with, um, in 85 with uh, Christopher Lambert uh, about you know, a thief who takes refuge with a, a group of ne'er-do-wells in a, in a subway and steals from people and plays music and rides roller skates. It's a very, very <laughs> odd film. But, yeah, he's really... I mean. As, as distinct as his visual style is, he is always interested in character, or at least in the beginning. Yeah, I, I, I found uh, The Last Battle a little bit vague on some of the storytelling details, and maybe it was because it was silent, but I think there were things that are, sort of feel missed. Mm. Um, there's certain character 
um, relationships or even goals that were really fuzzy to me. I did like uh, Jean Reno basically playing Wile E. Coyote, though. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, lo- I love a director that has an obsession with an actor like that, Jean Reno and his oh, Absolutely. Always, yeah. always popping up. I love that, and particularly that actor. Um, <laughs> and then Subway is so much fun. And I think, yeah, that's when I think everything begins to really come together for him. It is so odd. It's almost like pop art, but but it's also so fun and freewheeling and has this giddy kind of spirit. Like, you know, you've got to love a film whose final shot is someone, you know, dying while smoking a cigarette and bopping their head, you know. It's just... It's... Or, or, or swimming off into the blackness on the back of a dolphin. Yes. <laughs> that was almost... The, I had a flying horse moment when I saw it. But, yeah, and well... You were talking about um, the alienness of the underwater scenes in the Big Blue. He actually, um, after the Big Blue in '98, he made Nikita in 1990, and then he made Atlantis in 1991, which is just shots underwater uh, put to music, and it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. But underwater, a lot of the time, he films upside down and gives you the sense of the ocean being inverted. So it gives you that alien landscape because the moment you turn the camera upside down, it's completely unrecognisable. And I, I like that he got to have a film in which it was just visuals and music. Yeah, well, well, his uh, scuba diving was very important to him because his parents were scuba divers and he planned to be a marine biologist mm. until he uh, suffered an accident when he was 17. He couldn't dive anymore. Um, and... I'll, I, I'm so now that I've heard now that I've read that though I'm suddenly thinking how did he shoot Atlantis thing because he was one of the cinematographers and so that's what turned him to movies because he was looking for something else that that captured his imagination the same way so the big blue is obviously a a huge tribute to that and as was Atlantis um, especially as so many of the themes of that film are just kind of the the call and the pull of the ocean I mean these two divers were just constantly you know it's it starts being about a film about this sort of competition between the two but then more and more as the film progresses you start to realise that you know they have developed this kind of obsession with the ocean and, and the depths have kind of claimed them psychologically as well as physically and so they you know they just keep having to go back mm-hmm. um that wonderful moment where um, the the younger one, John Barr's character, yeah, yeah, um, he's uh, he's spent all <laughs> he spent all night out with the dolphins swimming, and his girlfriend wakes up and was like, "He was swimming all night," and and uh, yeah, he's like, "Yeah, I was just with the dolphin." <laughs> <laughs> She's almost jealous. You need yeah, you need a scene where where she goes, "Is that kelp on your collar?" What the- <laughs> <laughs> and um and yeah and then and the and the dreams that they have and and. And just the idea that it's better down there. Mm. You're right. Even the Jean Reno character, he, even though he so, seems so much more social and, and gregarious and better with people, but even he can't relate to other people like he, like he can relate to the ocean. Mm. Um, there's definitely that siren song that they're both enthralled to. Um, it's a little unwieldy, but it's, uh, and it goes off in some odd directions. Jean Reno is hilarious in it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> As <laughs> Enzo, the <laughs> lusty Italian diver, but <laughs> but yeah, I I found that their whole relationship fascinating, and it's a beautiful film to look at, and was apparently like the biggest French box office hit of all time, or something. When really? it was first released, it was gigantic. Wow. Like it was actually it was um, a sort of cultural phenomenon over there. 
one, one of the things that struck me the most about watching uh, Leon, the professional, is that like, you couldn't make that film today. You were talking about the uncomfortable nature of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, she's seen other people be sexual, and so she, despite being so young, wants, thinks that that's what being an adult is. And, and it's like in some ways it's a very sweet relationship because they obviously need one another uh, on an emotional level even though she's sort of pushing it a bit too far and he, he, he's sort of the child in the relationship. He's the one who doesn't, like, he, he just wants to do his work and drink his milk and, you know, nothing else. So it's, but it, it strikes me that you could not film, make a film like that today. I think, uh, I, I don't know, maybe there was a ton of controversy when it came out in 94 and I missed it because, you know, it's, we're watching it in retrospect. No, I think you're right. I think we, I think people's attitudes have definitely changed, and I don't know that the people would n- really be brave enough to put that kind of relationship in a film today, or at least not that kind of film, mm-hmm. because I feel like they would be worried that people would be too sidetracked. Um, there was definitely a, a part of me when I saw it that was just concerned, you know, for yeah. her, even though the the character, you know, is presented completely innocently in, in his love for her and, um, you know, there's nothing untoward. You just, because she's constantly pushing the line, it just makes you, it, you feel like from seeing other sort of uh, other stories that have gone badly, you're just mm-hmm. waiting for that to happen and that almost takes away, it almost kind of sidetracks you from what the core of their relationship is meant to be. I can't figure out if he's trying to make us uncomfortable or whether he's just approaching it as, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't that make be an interesting element to their relationship? Wouldn't it be weird if... But, but I also think it's quite realistic because, you know, teenagers, whether girls or boys, like, if somebody saved them from a situation, you, they do hero worship. And hero worship translates into love. And, and as you said, Lee, she's been uh, exposed to some very adult situations and it's all kind of jumbled in her head. And so sort of to her, you know, that sort of hero worship, love, sex thing is mm. sort of all connected. Like it doesn't feel like it's kind of like, oh, we're trying to be controversial. It's like, mm. no, nah, I think that's a way that relationship may play out. And particularly him not being completely in control at all times and, you know, being kind of like you said, like quite childlike and having to kind of, you know, and, and sort of relating on that level. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's quite realistically played to a certain point. So Besson's not trying to push those, or oh, isn't this dangerous buttons? He's just interested in that relationship? or I, th- I think there might be, have been a little bit of that. I think anyone making a film, you know, whether it's now or, in, or, or, or back then, I think they would have been aware of the fact that it would have been pushing some, some boundaries. But mm. I think that wasn't meant to be the focus. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. just think it's, it's just an interesting dynamic. It's like, rather than the usual story we've gotten, what if this was the dynamic and and yes it would and you know and making yes it would make us feel uncomfortable and you know and how how you know how does this love story between a grown man and a teenage girl kind of flourish and not be you know horrible um it's yeah i I don't know i think he's kind of just taking a look from an interesting angle it's also seeing that really sort of young character in a violent situation um you know that that We've kind of seen recently in films like Kick-Ass, you know, when you see uh, mm. Chloe Moritz's character with the gun and she's um, acting all innocent but then doing these really violent things. I think there's something about that idea that um, is really exciting on film as well. You sort of see someone who seems really unassuming but then is capable of a lot more. Mm. 
Absolutely. And, uh, and I actually, well, like you, I love the fifth element and I noticed a connection between, uh, the professional and the fifth element in, in terms of Besson's style and that both of those films have a moment, think about Leeloo in the back of the cab in fifth element and, um, uh, Natalie Portman standing at the door with the cops looking at her. And th- both of those those close-ups where they're both saying, please help me, it's this really anxious, like, we're so tied in on their faces. And that synthesised Eric Sarah score, which is so key to Besson's style, it's got such a distinctive sound. Both of those scenes are so... Um, they're so tangible and so similar that I suddenly thought, okay, that's, that's Besson right there in that shot. Yeah, it's and it's the same, you know, um, parallel that you can draw with Nikita and with Lilu. Mm. Um, they're both grown women, but they have that kind of childlike vulnerability to them. You know, Nikita kind of she's there's that wonderful scene where she goes into the supermarket and she doesn't know how to shop for herself, so she just follows the girl in front of her and buys everything that she buys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, she's kind of learning how to be an adult in herself. Mm. And Lilu, you know, has just woken up in this body and kind of has to learn how to talk and act in this society because she's been asleep for however long and um you know but but despite that she's this force of of extreme strength she's a force of nature and and uh, you know there's that wonderful quality when you have a a vulnerable female character and there's always a, a you know a male counterpoint who kind of wants to look after her and save her but at the same time she's got so much strength within herself that's like mm. a, that's a really wonderful duality and one that obviously luke besson really likes because i think i've seen that in a lot of his films now absolutely yeah, yeah. and yeah now that you think of it there is these this kind of theme of rebirth in both of those films of of yeah the lee luke character and the and the nikita character being reborn into something you know quite extraordinary mm. like for what is generally considered a kind of a you know night late nineties blockbuster? It's extremely eccentric. Mm. <laughs> it's so wonderful. There's just so many. I mean, I would I would place it, it if not in my top five, definitely in my top ten. It's just one of my most loved. It's the film that I always go to when I'm you know I've had a bad day or you know I just it's one of the ones that I need to watch regularly because I love it that much. I don't ever want to have parts of it sort of um, you know slip from my mind. And it's because I think. Uh, for a while there, a lot of sci-fi was getting bogged down into this very kind of sleek, futuristic, the future is going to be all minimalist people in white and lots of chrome. Mm. <laughs> and and I just thought this film was just so fun and vibrant and exciting in the way that it presented the future. I love the fact that the city had kind of, um, you know, the streets of the city had become all kind of pollution and smog and everyone had kind of risen up out of it with their, you know, yeah. um, floating transport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and just the little details like Corbin's um cigarette filter that's you know pretty the cigarette is pretty much all filter because he's trying to quit <laughs> and uh and all the costumes were designed by Jean-Paul Gaultier I think you know yes. even the girls in the McDonald's restaurants and the flight attendants and everything they all looked super chic and had this crazy uh you know futuristic style that that was in keeping throughout the whole film that made it so unlike anything else you'd ever seen in any other kind of sci-fi. Yeah. And this is the thing that amazes me with Besson throughout his career, no matter how big his films have got, he's always retained his Frenchness. Yeah. <laughs> his films are all so very French. And it was interesting reading that he was influenced by British, um, not British, but French comics he read as a kid when he did, like basically wrote the story for The Fifth Element as a teenager. Because, like, you know, large blue opera singers with tentacles and, like, <laughs> you, you, I'm thinking of those kind of French animated films like Fantastic Planet and stuff like that where mm. you, you've, you've kind of got those similar kind of images and Mobius art and things like that. And 
yeah, it's also it's all right there. All that sort of you know French influence and upbringing, and 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 um, yeah, it's just so great. It's and it's defiant. I love it. There's a sense of kind of choreography throughout that whole film as well. I mean, there's that wonderful scene when when the when the diva sings and it's mm-hmm. cut together with that fantastic fight scene of of Lilu with the stones up in the hotel room, and that's one of my favourite scenes I think of all time in a movie. The way they've timed it with the music and the way it kind of pulls to a crescendo and the opera with the with um you know her fighting and it's just it's so cool it's such a great scene but the whole film mm. is just so stylish in that way that it kind of sets everything up like it, it would seem very you know comic book inspired the way it frames everything you know so artfully but with you know such a kind of punkish style i really really love it and and two films in a row letting gary oldman be wonderfully <laughs> <laughs> bizarre villains well, and and that and that idea of the uh, of the girl sort of coming into her own under weird circumstances carries on in his next two films. He made The Messenger or Joan of Arc in 1999, and then Angel A in or Angela in 2005. Um, Joan of Arc uh, was an it's obviously a very important subject matter for for the French people. He does play her a little bit like a manic pixie dream saint. She just seemed full on. Um, <laughs> Mila you know. very, it, it, I think Mila doesn't know how to do anything except full on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got one setting, straight ahead. And I did love the Dustin Hoffman character just coming in in the last act and tearing all her theories apart. Again, he managed to get that sort of, these little touches of puckish Luc Besson humour into the Joan of Arc movie. Sure, yeah. Like when he's explaining the sword thing, that was hilarious. That's true. And, that is true. And it's kind of like, how the fuck did he do this? And yeah, I, I, I think I liked this film more than I thought I would. I thought it was going to be pretty dreary, and it ended up kind of being somewhere in the middle. But again, his his visual touches and 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 kind of the yen with an exhilarating sequence were definitely there. And and yeah, and Miller like you kind of have to stand a few feet back from that performance because <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> but she's quite good. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always felt that It's a Wonderful Life would be better if Clarence was a sexy woman. And <laughs> then he makes Angela. So, yeah, I, we're, we're taken care of. That's uh... and, and if George Bailey were kind of a wisecracking down on himself, uh, you know, French uh, grafter. Mm. I really enjoyed this film. Look, I know it does have a bit of a bit of a kind of a wish fulfillment thing, although I do think it kind of fits narratively in with Leon and and the fifth element in a way that you do have a, a male protagonist who's kind of lost her in a rut who is rescued by kind of you know rescued emotionally in some way by a otherworldly or you know a, a spirited woman mm. I love how funny and how punchy Angel A is um I it's considerably shorter than a lot of his films and kind of has that kind of punch to it. Yeah, I, I wound up loving this. Mm. Yeah, I, mm. I don't know. I start to, this is where I start to feel there's a bit of a decline. Like, for me at least, in, in watching Besson's films, I kind of feel like we're, we're sort of, he's slipping away a little bit. Because after, after this, he made the, um, the Arthur trilogy, uh, sort of half animated, half 
live action uh, Arthur and the Invisibles or the Mini Boys in 2006, Arthur and the Revenge of Malthazar in 2009, and Arthur and the War of Two Worlds in 2010. And um, it's not really a story that sustains itself for three films. But, um, but yeah, just about a kid who, who sort of... It's a chosen one story. He's the chosen one and uh, has to help this these little people, magic people, not die. I, I'm not... I'm, I don't know. Um, I watched it sounds all- like barely enough story to sustain one film, let alone three. I'm not sure watching them all in one go was the wisest course of action for me. But I do find it interesting that filmmakers like Besson, like, a lot like Robert Rodriguez, have this part of them where they really want to make kids' films. And it's like they have this, this drive to do them properly. And, but they end up looking no better than the standard studio stuff where you just feel it's being churned out through a machine. Mm which I think underlines how difficult it is to do kids' films well. I did find this one very odd, this, this trilogy of films. Uh, Steph, did you see these? Uh, no, no, I haven't seen okay. them. Yeah, I kind of avoided them. But yeah, it's sort of, it, it's sort of also at this point, I don't know if his budgets are lowered or something, but the effects start to look considerably dodgier from here on in as well. Mm. Yeah, look, there, there, I will say there are some really good ones in the third Arthur film, like some effects that made me sit up and go, oh, wow, they... They clearly, you know, spent a bit on this. Mm. Whereas in 2010, he made that same year. Actually, he made the Adventures of Adele, or the Extraordinary Adventures of Adele Blancsick. Yes, and yeah, the effects do look a little slap, or quite slapdash. Yeah, it's uh, a couple of steps above Aussie TV. Actually, speaking of Robert Rodriguez, it does feel like how he he sort of throws effects films together at the end mm. just to get the film made. And, um, oh, I did wonder, there was a guy, because it's, it's a period film, it's like an adventurer, a female adventurer who, you know, uh, finds dinosaurs and solves crimes or something. But um, there's a guy in Egypt called Aziz. Yes! Oh. And I was wondering. <laughs> and it also happens at a moment when they open a tomb yes. and it has sand coming out, which, like, it's a lot like the Fifth Element opening. And I was wondering if it was the same character. Is it meant to be? Because it is set in the twenty yeah, in the nineteen tens or whatever, which like isn't the start of the fifth element around then as well. Yeah, could be. Mm-hmm. That occurred to me as well that maybe the two are connected in the same universe. It's based on a apparently a hugely popular French series of graphic novels that's been going since the seventies. Mm. And I completely admire the idea. I loved having a you know a female kind of Indiana Jones character. And it's really cute and inventive, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and I think that was almost my problem. There's almost too much stuff going on. Um, Steph, have you seen any of these last few films? Because there's The Lady and the Family after this. Um... Uh, the Aung the Sung Suu Kyi film in 2011 and the De Niro Pfeiffer film from last year. No, no, I haven't. Because, I, I, look, I think I would love Besson a lot more if I'd sort of stopped a couple of films ago. He, he just feels a bit flat because his early films are so Besson. And I know a lot of that is because, you know, the 80s and the 90s had their own aesthetic as well. And you can get away with stuff back then that you can't get away with now. But... <laughs> Particularly the way films end, I find. That, you know, films from the 90s, they, they kind of um, have this wonderful quality of saying, here is a bunch of stuff that happens. And then it's like at the end of, of La Femme Nikita, mm. everyone's kind of like, well... We'll miss her, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then it's credits, and I was like, "Well, uh, uh, okay, <laughs> is that is that?" Yeah, that's, that's definitely. Yeah, well, I hadn't thought of that. Well, I think considering right. films these days have eighty-three endings, I think yeah, we could learn exactly. something from that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's there is no way you could watch the lady 
which is the biopic of Aung San Suu Kyi. And no, if you didn't know who had directed it, you would never pick it from watching it, um, which yeah. isn't necessarily a bad thing if you if you want to change your style up. But I don't see any any new style in there. I didn't see any. I mean, it, it focuses it's... on her husband more than her for some reason. Mm. Particularly in a film called The Lady. And we're focusing mainly on the husband. Yeah, it's an it's such a bland film. Um, I was pretty underwhelmed by this, and particularly you've got an extraordinary story to tell, and the whole thing's so flat, and it just doesn't. I don't know. I don't know whether he's trying. He's just he's been overtaken by the earnestness of the whole thing, like whether he's trying not to step all over it with his style and, and in trying to be respectful to the subject, he's completely vanillaed himself into the margins. I'm not sure, but... And how great would it have been if we'd gone in for an extreme close-up of her and the Eric Serra music had, had <laughs> been turned up and she'd said, please help, you know, to anyone on the other side of the fence. I just wanted to see some of the old Besson in there. Definitely. <laughs> and there's just none of it. It's like, yeah, you're right. It could have been made by anybody, and, you know. And speaking of could have been made by anybody, The Family in 2013, a comedy about Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer and their family uh, in witness protection. Uh, they've turned state's evidence on the mob and they've been sent to France by Tommy Lee Jones so that they don't get killed. Um, it's a comedy? Yeah. It, it's, it, it is, look, it's, it's a film that, like, it has some chuckles at times but never any laugh-out-loud moments because there are very few jokes. A lot of it is just struggling with tone. Like, there's... Because mm. Besson has never shied from violence. Like, his violence is always really quite impactful and it's the same in this, too. Yeah. It's like, all of a sudden, she's, like, hitting this kid across the head. You know, he's tried to kind of, you know, feel her up with a tennis racket. And, like, you see, like, his head bleeding and she's kind of bashing his face in with this racket. And you're just like... Whoa, okay, I don't know if this strikes the comedy tone you're kind of going for. It's more of a hardcore action thing, maybe. But, but again, again not... there's no, there's none of his, his signature style in there, and I'm kind of hoping, he's got a film coming out this year called Lucy, I think, with Scarlett Johansson. I think she's playing an alien, I'm not entirely no, sure. No, which sounds terrific. She's a drug mule who swallows the drugs that give her superpowers. There you go. And that sounds like... <laughs> Some of the old Besson. It does. Coming it back. sounds like a classic Besson sort of scenario. So, <laughs> with, you know, I think it's her and Morgan Freeman and somebody else. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds really goofy. Yeah. It sounds like a, at least stepping, a, a step up from playing an operating system, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's such a weird note to end on that, um, I don't know. Steph, how great was Fifth Element? <laughs> how great was it? <laughs> you want to go back there? I just I mean, want to end on that high. I, like, look, I love I'm, this film so much. I'm happy from everything from Last Battle to Angel A. I'm happy to take that. It's just those last sort of eight years, which have just, you know, it's those damn kids' movies. They've ruined Rodriguez and they've ruined the <laughs> song. Bloody kids. But he is, look, he's a great filmmaker. He's an influential filmmaker. Oh, God. And he's made, like, he had yeah. a run we, of classics. Can we talk about the 719 million movies that he's written and produced? Oh, he, God, yeah. His company, Europacore, are actually a cottage industry in French and worldwide cinema. Like, they're responsible for the Transporter movies. They're responsible for the Taken movies. All of these films, Besson co-writes and co-produces. Mm. Like, I love that he co-writes. Like, guy's written, like, 100 screenplays. Most of them, the same film. Um, <laughs> old guy has to save members of family from terrorists. Uh, <laughs> but he still writes 
I mean, we've obviously just stuck to the ones where he is the clear author. He's the, the director and often the writer. But, yeah, he's, uh, he's incredibly prolific. Well, I think once once he must get known for a particular style, and then and then people sort of come to him as the go to guy for writing that kind of movie, and they're like, "Oh, you know, we've got old guy who needs to save his family." Who's <laughs> 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 written a bunch of these movies? Before. That's <laughs> but true. Yeah. He's all, like he's been described as the John Hughes of action movies because in that way that John Hughes just wrote and produced heaps of Home Alone clone comedies in the nineties. <laughs> Basson is basically making the transporter over and over again. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. It is. And on that note, Steph, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. It was great to be here. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Those aren't pillows. Pillows.